Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Packers Unscripted from Packers.com. I am Mike Spofford, joined, as always, by my trusted colleague, Weston Hodkowitz. We're coming to you from socially distant locations here at Lambeau Field. And West, the Green Bay Packers on Saturday night advanced their record to 11-3 and with a 24-16, a little bit too close for comfort victory over the Carolina Panthers. But nonetheless, it was a victory, a tale of two halves. Packers totally dominated the first half of play, then couldn't quite get things going in the second half, but did enough to, uh, to hang on to win. And Green Bay is still in control of that number one playoff seed in the NFC. Well, first and foremost, Mike, you want to talk about winning games, looking good while you win games. Ask the Los Angeles Rams and Pittsburgh Steelers about what it means to win games in the National Football League and not have a letdown against a team that maybe you shouldn't be on the same level with. It doesn't happen. There's only 32 teams. There's so much parity. These type of things happen occasionally for the Green Bay Packers. A really fast start on Saturday night offensively. Honestly, I even tweeted about it, wrote about it in our live updates. They moved the ball at will on that opening series, the 46-yard run by Aaron Jones, really breaking things open. Whatever Carolina was doing, they couldn't stop Aaron Rodgers in this offense. And that sort of carried through for the next quarter and a half, but they did put the clamps down. They mixed up some of their coverages. They packed more guys into the box, uh, really loaded the line of scrimmage, and most importantly, were able to get pressure with a four-man rush against the Packers offensive line that has been so stout this season. Despite all of that, the defense kind of was able to pick up where the offense left off and got a huge defensive stop on the goal line. Chris Barnes, as I joked about on Twitter, but tumbling that ball away from Teddy Bridgewater as he tried to dive over the end zone. Kevin King returns that 48 yards. The Packers end up generating a touchdown off that. A huge 14-point swing there potentially for Green Bay. And in the second half, they got three and outs when they needed them. They got the final stop with 55 seconds to go when they needed it. I thought this was a performance the defensive uh, front and, and defense in general could really build off of, while offensively giving the Packers a chance to reflect on what happened in those last two quarters and in what needs to be corrected now going into this game against Tennessee. Yeah, I think we saw just how smooth and efficient this Packers offense can be when it's running the football like it was in the yeah. first half. And not just the 46-yard run by Aaron Jones, but there were chunk plays against the – or I should say with the ground game that, uh, you know, we're just making things easy for this Packers offense and making right. life easy for Aaron Rodgers. So then the question is, okay, where did things go wrong? And as always, it's not just one thing. I think it started with the Packers dropping some passes. Alan Lazard drops one at the end of the first half on the, the Jared Cook Dallas playoff, re, you know, reprise of, uh, of that great play. But the passes drop by the sideline. Packers don't get some points there at the end of the first half. Devontae Adams drops a slant early in the second half that would have converted a first down. Aaron Rodgers talked about a, a clearly missed hands to the face on Lucas Patrick that, um, you know, that would have given the Packers an automatic first down to continue a drive. Then Matt LaFleur admitted he got away from the running game. Aaron Rodgers got away from it a little bit too with trying to throw those run solution horizontal throws to Devontae Adams. Packers didn't stick with the run. So all these things started to add up to then – the offense not being as as smooth and efficient did put together the one drive with the big third down conversion to Alan Lazard on the shallow cross that got uh, the field goal from Mason Crosby, another clutch kick by Crosby, 51 yards outdoors in the cold. That uh, that was not an easy kick by any means, but it rescored the Packers two score lead and that ended up being enough to hang on. 
Yeah, the, the one thing I really loved about this performance, starting with off, offensively what Green Bay was able to do, Aaron Jones, 114 total yards of offense in the first half. That was the most by a Packers running back going back to 2016 when uh, Ty Montgomery had that huge game against the Chicago Bears. And then before that, it hadn't been done since 2004. So really got off to a fast start. I thought it, you know, especially with Jamal Williams going out with the thigh injury, it showed you that down the stretch here, if there is a game where you need to lean on Aaron Jones, he can handle that workload. And honestly, probably should have had a few more opportunities, even though he still carried the ball 20 times for 145 yards and the touchdown in that victory. But also when you mentioned the, the, the adjustments that they made, I, I was listening to Matt LaFleur. I thought one thing that was very interesting too, that he mentioned is yes, getting away from the, you know, too many run solutions and things of that nature, but also the fact that this happens in the national football league where the Packers go into a game thinking that if they get the ball to their playmakers in the open field, they're going to be able to just naturally break tackles based on what Carolina has put on film. The Panthers tackled very well in this game. They probably played a little bit better than what Green Bay was expecting at the second level, and that narrowed some of those opportunities. But you have to find the the reaction to that. You have to be able to sort of figure out the next step to that. So I I mentioned an insider inbox because somebody was saying, hey, is it better to have a performance like this going into a game against Tennessee where you know what you got to correct as opposed to you know, you lose and now you're kind of doubting yourselves. I think Matt LaFleur and this coaching staff and that obviously that locker room has shown so much maturity that I don't think it's based on a win or a loss in terms of how they respond the following week. They're going to be able to take the good with the bad and the bad with the good and make the necessary adjustments. So I feel like a showing like this, if Green Bay can put its best foot forward in the sec from what they learned in the second half, uh, specifically that third quarter where they only were able to get off six plays, I believe, that is really, I think, could bode well for them going up against a Tennessee team this week that, while has a very scary offensive weapon and, and Derrick Henry and the you know second or third best total offense in the league, defensively has given up a lot of big plays, has not had a lot of sacks, has struggled to get pressure on the quarterback. It, Green Bay has a very tough opponent coming up this week, but I think some of the things that happened with this offensive performance against Carolina doesn't necessarily indicate that they're going to struggle in the same ways against the Titans. Yeah, this upcoming matchup with Tennessee, another primetime game. It'll be Sunday night uh, at uh, at Lambeau Field under the lights. You're talking about two of the best offenses in the league. You know, bottom line, whether you want to say the Packers are driven by Aaron Rodgers, the Titans are driven by Derrick Henry, lots of other parts. Ryan Tannehill having a great season at quarterback. A.J. Brown, a formidable receiver. Corey Davis, the Packers obviously have. Devontae Adams and Aaron Jones and all of those weapons. Seems like it's shaping up as a game where – both of these teams are going to want to try to keep that other team's offense off the field. It's going to be about when your offense is on the field, you want to control the clock, control the ball, and maybe limit the possessions for those guys on the other side. It's it's going to be, it's going to be a really interesting clash. Two teams that are both headed to the postseason and, uh, and are both certainly considered Super Bowl contenders. Yeah. And, and you, the, you look at the aspect of this thing with Derrick Henry, his breakout season in the national football league came when Matt LaFleur was his offensive coordinator back in 2018. And he hasn't stopped since then. And this season, 14 games, the Titans have played nine of them. He's gone over a hundred yards only once or twice. He's been held underneath 60. I mean, he is going to get his touches and he is going to get his yards. And that's why ball security time of possession 
being able to control the clock, I think is more so than any other game this year for Green Bay is going to be so, so important. But for Green Bay's run defense, I thought this was another performance that they could build on. They, they Now, they weren't facing Christian McCaffrey on Saturday night. I'm not going to make any illusions that this was uh, the top flight you know, uh, offensive juggernaut that, that the Panthers have been the last few years on the ground, but Mike Davis is a very respectable running back and does a lot of the same things that they aren't shifting the scheme to, to make it work for him. He's had to adjust to what they like to do with their running back in green Bay. If you look at that game, you look at the, the Philadelphia game and obviously Detroit, the last 54 carries against skill position players, only 204 rushing yards allowed. Now, Derek Henry is a different puzzle to solve, but I, I, you feel differently about this Packers run defense that then maybe you did after he, they gave up that big play against the bears and David Montgomery, they have hit their stride a little bit. I think Dean Lowry and Kenny Clark are playing some of their best football of the year right now. And if Chris, uh, Chris Barnes really is okay coming off of that eye injury that he exited with on Saturday night. Uh, I think you're seeing that defensive front and that front seven really kind of gel and, and become the unit green Bay felt they could be. Yeah, well, that uh, that group is going to get its biggest test of the season, that's for sure, with Derrick Henry coming in to Lambeau Field on Sunday night. As far as the playoff picture is concerned, once again, some things went Green Bay's way over the weekend, namely that the New Orleans Saints lost at home to the Kansas City Chiefs. So where things sit right now, the Packers on top of the NFC at 11-3, and the Saints and the Seahawks right behind at 10-4. and What that means, Wes, is – the Packers can clinch the number one seed with just one more victory, but it isn't as simple as, Oh, they just need to beat either Tennessee or Chicago. It's not quite that simple because the only way the Packers can clinch the number one seed this week with a win over Tennessee is if Seattle also loses to the Rams. If Seattle beats the Rams, then the Packers will have to win at Chicago in week 17 in order to clinch the number one seed. So it doesn't take victories in both games, but it's not quite as simple as, oh, they just win one or the other and they get it. What we do know is if they beat Chicago in week 17, the number one seed is Green Bay's, regardless of what happens against Tennessee. I, I love that you're my coworker, <laughs> that you're the one that handles all this stuff because somebody asked me that in inbox too, and also on Twitter, uh, what, what are the scenarios? What are the different machinations here that, that could lead to the Packers getting the number one seed? I'm like, ask Mike Spofford. He has you covered, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you boiled it down as simple as you could. If the Rams coming off a very tough loss, mind you, to the Jets can bounce back and beat Seattle, which I think we've kind of seen already in the NFC West, any of those four teams can beat anybody on any given week. But if that happens, Green Bay takes the field on Sunday night knowing that they have an opportunity to clinch the one seed, which would be the first time, Mike, since 2007 season for the Green Bay Packers. I mean, what a remarkable achievement that would be. And now with only having one bye per conference, the, the emphasis, the importance, the value of that week off really is heightened in the fact that the Green Bay Packers could have their own way to having this thing go through Lambeau Field on the way to Tampa. That's huge. Yeah, I'm just going to correct you, though. The Packers had the number one seed in 2011. But the last last time time, the Packers hosted the NFC Championship game was 2007. So you just got 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 your data just a little bit bit mixed up there. But, yes, that's what the Packers are after. The Packers are after getting the number one seed, which is the only first-round buy in the playoffs this year. Then you have one home game to win in order to be able to host 
that conference title game. And the Packers have not hosted a conference title game since Brett Favre's final game in a Green Bay Packers uniform back in at the end of the 2007 season in January of 2008. So I appreciate that. That's what I was going for, Mike. And then I yeah. ended up flubbing it. That's okay. That's okay. Well, so those, that's the playoff scenario for the Packers here with, with two weeks to go. It's, uh, um, it's not as simple as you think, but yet it's not overly complicated either. And as you said, I think the biggest thing, everybody's going to be watching that late afternoon game on Sunday, Seattle against the LA Rams. If the Rams win that game, the Packers are coming out of the tunnel saying, hey, we can clinch the number one seed right here. And then the Packers can essentially make the week 17 game against the, against the Bears irrelevant if, uh, if things fall the correct way. I want to mention this too, if I can. So the Green Bay Packers, the, the Pro Bowl uh, was announced on Monday night. Seven Green Bay Packers are going to the- That was, uh, that was next on my list here. It so, was, yeah. but uh, seven <laughs> Packers are going to the virtual uh, Pro Bowl this right, year. Right. For a team that so many people thought didn't have uh, the talent or the ability or last year was a fluke, Green Bay Packers, Seattle Seahawks, Kansas City, and then Balt- I think it's Baltimore, right? What's the fourth yes. team? Yeah. Yes. All four tied with seven teams going to seven players going to the pro bowl this year. Uh, it, it's just first time since 2011, the Packers have had that many uh, players selected upon first initial balloting. It seems like there's been so many years where Baltimore has gotten that many. Seattle has been a big favorite to see green Bay finally get that respect. And the fact that, Hey, maybe the green Bay Packers are actually pretty darn good. And it, it just isn't an anomaly. It's it's a it's a playoff picture that's shaping up, and maybe Green Bay's starting to get some of the respect it deserves. Yeah, well, as far as those seven Pro Bowlers are concerned, we'll rattle through them here. Aaron Rodgers uh, earns his ninth Pro Bowl selection, which ties the franchise record held by, and you can help me here, Brett Favre and Forrest Gregg. Forrest Gregg, I believe, yes. So Rodgers uh, tied for the most Pro Bowl. Pro Bowl selections now in franchise history. Devontae Adams gets his fourth consecutive Pro Bowl, which is the longest streak for a Packers wide receiver since James Lofton back in the 1980s. Aaron Jones and Jair Alexander and Elton Jenkins all get their first Pro Bowl nods. And then we have Zadarius Smith getting his second consecutive here in his two years with Green Bay. And then David Bakhtiari, the four-time Pro Bowler, or sorry, four-time All-Pro, now the three-time Pro Bowler um, at uh, at left tackle. And here, here's the thing, Wes. I know a lot of Packers fans out there are like, well, what about Corey Lindsley and what about Robert Tunyon? Perfectly good arguments for either one of them to be named to the Pro Bowl. <clears throat> but I'll say a couple of things. First, when you have seven guys make the Pro Bowl, you can't be complaining about the guys who, I'm sorry, you just don't get to complain when you get seven uh, on the list, first off. But the other, thing, the other thing I'll say is that I do think in some respects that Elton Jenkins might have taken Corey Lindsley's spot, if that makes sense, because I think Elton Jenkins got a lot more recognition around the league than a normal second-year player would because of starting at different positions. And when these assistant coaches are looking at film and preparing for the Packers and even preparing for other opponents, but seeing the Packers on film and they're saying, Hey, look at this 74. He's lining up at center. He's lining up at tackle. He's lining up at guard. This guy's got, you know, got it, you know, getting it done everywhere. I think in some ways that, that, uh, and then combined with Corey Lindsley getting hurt here late in the year, I think that might've, uh, 
that might have impacted Lindsley's chances to get a Pro Bowl. Because let's be honest here, you're not going to get three of your five offensive line starters named to one Pro Bowl team. Is that really realistic? So, yeah. Um, yeah. so I throw that out there. But the, but the other thing I will say with Tunyon leading all NFL tight ends with 10 touchdown receptions, and I'll be honest, I, you know, I would certainly take Tunyon over Evan Engram, who was one of the NFC tight ends who made the list. I think Tunyon's had a better season. I, I just don't think there's any argument there. So that's my that that's that's me saying my piece as far as the Pro Bowl. Now you can go. It was a good piece too, Mike. <laughs> Tunyon. So, so here's the thing with the Tunyon argument. It's almost like you didn't expect him to be here yet, but then when you see yeah. what the criteria was to actually be a Pro Bowl tight end this season. Robert Tunyon was a pro bowl tight end. And, and unfortunately the tough thing is, is, you know, George Kittle goes down with the injury. You don't have the traditional stalwarts mind you that you have at that position. So this really was a great opportunity for him to do it this year. And when you match up the the statistics with Evan Ingram, I mean, it just does, it's not even close. I think it was ESPN had Ingram down for eight drops this year. They don't have Tunyon for one Tunyon had 10 touchdowns. Ingram has one. Ingram had a really fine rookie season a number of years ago, but I don't know if the name recognition really follows it the way that, that maybe it should. Uh, Tunyon though, it is what it is. I'm sure if you ask Robert, he doesn't really care. He wants to just win as many games as possible and get a Super Bowl ring. Elton Jenkins probably is one of the most deserving players of it in the entire national football league. The first player that has started at center tackle and guard uh, for the green Bay Packers, since the merger in 1970 uh, the fact that he's the first second year offensive lineman to get selected to the pro bowl in 60 air years, Mike, since your family favorite Daryl Tetak made this, <laughs> made the pro bowl team in 1952. And the fact that Elton Jenkins has played center the past two weeks without there being any hiccups, there weren't any bad snaps. He seems to fit naturally the guy can start at any position that the Green Bay Packers need him to. He happens to be a Pro Bowl caliber left guard, but when he filled in at right tackle in the opener, it looked fine. When he did it against uh, San Francisco at left tackle in the middle of the season, looked fine. And at center, he's looked just fine. It is a shame that Corey Lindsley's gone seven seasons without being selected yeah. to one Pro Bowl. But Elton Jenkins, man, has been remarkable. And I have to say, though, Mike, you mentioned, is it realistic for three guys from the same offensive line to get the Pro Bowl? The Dallas Cowboys made a cottage industry out of it in the 2010s. So it would be nice to see Green Bay get a little bit more of that respect. Yeah, I hear that with regard to the Cowboys. And certainly this year. They just had a know, bunch of first round picks. That's the only difference. Yeah, that's that's the other thing too. But, uh, you know, but also this year we aren't going to see the, you know, injury replacements and this and that, you know, the Pro Bowl roster is what it is and it's done. There aren't going to be all of these other additions to uh, to the list as, as there are in, in normal years. So, uh, um so for that, um, as I think you mentioned in, in Insider Inbox readers have mentioned, it is a little bit more of an exclusive honor this year because there aren't yeah. going to be as many guys who get that label of being a pro bowler in 2020. So, um, well, before we go here, Wes, uh, we'll end, unfortunately, on a sad note. The Packers former assistant coach Kevin Green um, at the tender age of 58 passed away on Monday at his home in Alabama. Um very suddenly, very shockingly, um, something, uh, a loss that's being felt all around the NFL community. And he was the Packers outside linebackers coach for five seasons from 2009 to 2013, was part of that coaching staff that won the Super Bowl in the 2010 season. 
And I'll just say this about Kevin Green. I don't know if I have in all of my years, which is up to 15 now, watching every training camp practice from the sidelines over there at Nitschke Field, Hinkle Field, wherever it might be. I don't know if I've ever seen an assistant coach more passionate snap after snap, play after play in 11 on 11 drills in training camp. I mean, it could be the third stringers against the third stringers. And if Kevin Green's guy beats the offensive tackle and gets a pressure on the quarterback, he was, you know, he, he was all hooping and hollering and letting his guys know. I mean, this guy was fired up about every single thing that had to do with football and, uh, and certainly left us way too soon. What a remarkable human being, what a remarkable life, uh, and just the much passion that he lived with. And Dom Capers, Packers defensive coordinator for a number of years now with the Minnesota Vikings, I thought he said it probably as best as anybody could. Um, as good of a player as he was, as much as he produced on the field, he was an even better player person off of it. Um, left the game in 2013, stepped away, watched his kids to grow. And I, I, in their formidable years, he wanted to be there for that. He came back to coaching in 2017. I don't know many people that were more passionate about their craft uh, than, than Kevin green. And I'll tell you this, Mike, you know, for a young guy, I wrote a little bit about this in insider inbox, but for a guy that was working his beat for the first time, when we used to do those coaches interviews down in the hallway, you have to put in your request for who you want. And there were a few days there where it's just Wes Hodkowitz and Kevin green and little five foot eight, Wes Hodkowitz, Kevin green, just a mountain of a man, former pro wrestler too, uh, in the off season. And he was always so respectable and, and communicative and really loved his players. It didn't matter. He loved coaching Clay Matthews. He was ever even more excited about seeing a development in, in a, uh, you know, uh, Andy Malumba or, or Nate Palmer. He was just rooting for all his guys. A couple of my favorite stories. I just got to throw this one in there quick. The end of the 2012 season, after the, the memories there, the Packers end up falling in that uh, that playoff game to the to the San Francisco 49ers, Colin Kaepernick has the game he had. I, Wes Hodkowitz, working at the Green Bay Press-Gazette, mustered up the confidence, maybe even a little bit of ill-placed confidence, to ask Kevin Green if Dom Caper still had it. And Kevin stared at me for no short of five seconds with this, you're saying, like, at some point he he lost it? Is that is that what you're asking me? And I thought I was going to die. I felt about three foot tall. But after that, he gave a remarkable answer that was illuminative into why Dom's system was successful for so long and also the tight-knit relationship that those two guys had. I don't even want to get into that street, but I mean, it was a father-son type thing, the bond that they shared. And when Dom got that job in 09, bringing Kevin in and was able to get his hands on Clay Matthews right off the bat, uh, the, the relationship that they formed. Uh, I only got two years with them. You got a couple more, but I, I would be hard pressed in all these years where I covered this team, uh, you know, going on forward to find someone that was more energetic about coaching football and seeing improvement in young men uh, than Kevin Green was. So my thoughts and prayers go out to his family, uh, his wife, Tara, who fought so hard for him to get into the pro football hall of fame. Uh, just a heartbreaking thing. 58 years old, too young. Yeah, and Dom Capers was the man who introduced Kevin Green when he did get that Pro Football Hall of Fame induction in Canton, Ohio in 2016. With that, we will call it a wrap on this edition of Packers Unscripted. Be sure to follow all of our coverage of the team on Packers.com. For Wes, I am Mike. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you next time.